Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. This week on the AAF Exchange, we'll discuss the president's latest $2.5 trillion spending proposal, the state of the federal budget, and what comes after the American Jobs Plan with AAF President Douglas Holtz-Aiken. Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. How have you been the last week? Doing great. Can't complain. Yeah, we finally got some beautiful weather here in D.C., so good things to come. Yes. (laughs) So let's jump right into things. Um, Last week, President Biden announced his $2.5 trillion American jobs plan. We don't yet have the legislative text, but we do have the president's very lengthy outline. So let's start with what we know. First, the American jobs plan is being marketed as this infrastructure package. How do you see it? Yeah, it's not an infrastructure bill. I mean, there is some infrastructure in there. About 6% of it is roads and bridges. And there's some other traditional infrastructure uh, in airports, ports, things like that. Um, But there's a $400 billion Medicaid expansion that's awfully hard for me to believe you can call infrastructure. Uh, There's hundreds of billions of dollars for renovating housing not traditionally thought of as a productive uh, infrastructure. There's a broadband expansion. So that's that's the modern version of infrastructures, you know, $100 billion there. There's clean energy tax credits. There's, you know, just a lot of different things uh, in that two and a half trillion. So is it an infrastructure bill? No. Does it have some infrastructure? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the spending package seems to call for a lot of major policy and program changes unrelated to infrastructure. What yeah. I mean, you, you walk through some of those key provisions, but, you know, maybe expand a little bit on those. Well, I mean, you can think of this as like one slice is um, what are we going to do for uh, uh, the climate? Right? So there's some clean energy tax credits. There's um, uh, money for the electric, electrical grid. And, you know, that's sort of that's a climate initiative as much as anything. Uh, there's a lot of money for clean drinking water. We're going to get rid of all the lead pipes. That's traditionally states and localities take care of those kinds of things. Now suddenly it's a federal priority. That That's very new. Uh, the renovation, hundreds of billion dollars to renovate housing. That's that's an unusual thing uh, for the federal government to get into. So that's a, that's a really uh, big difference. So, um, And then there's the, the tough call, which is there's about 300 billion in there for domestic manufacturing. Is that industrial policy that traditional market-oriented people would would not favor? To some extent, yes. Is it a sensible reaction to not wanting supply chains in China? Perhaps to some extent, but you can put those things outside of China, but not, not in the United States. And so, it, it's hard to even figure out what that is. But it's that's three hundred billion dollars. That used to be a lot of money. Hmm. So they've called this the American Jobs Plan. So let's talk about the potential impact on the economy and jobs. We'll talk more about the plan's tax hikes in a moment, but yeah. what do you see as the overall impact on jobs and, and growth? So here's how I think about it, right? This is not about getting back to full employment. That presumably got taken care of with the, the American Rescue Plan, the $1.9 trillion that they borrowed and, and passed um, earlier this year. So this is meant to be something that affects the performance of the economy on average over long periods of time. So it's the trend rate of growth that's that's in play. So it's not really about jobs because o- over long periods of time, if you're getting back to full employment, the, the number of jobs is really dictated by the population and labor force growth more than anything else. So it's not really about jobs. Could be about the quality of jobs, like real wage growth. And there I think it's probably bad news because 
you know, they intend to raise some corporate uh, uh, tax revenue. Suppose you raise that revenue and you spent it very carefully on high return traditional infrastructure and, and maybe R&D. It might break even from a growth perspective, but I doubt it. I mean, most of the evidence would suggest that that would, on average, uh, diminish capital accumulation, innovation, uh, slow productivity growth, and, and, and as a result, slow G- GDP growth, but also slow real wage growth. And that's the bad news for the middle class in this. That's if you just did a piece of this. Now, if you, if you throw in the Medicaid expansion and all the other social welfare initiatives, it, it's a negative for the economy. I think there's, that's unquestionably true. And so I worry about doing that, you know, calling it jobs. It's, it's the opposite. And no one's going to see it right now because this is meant to be over the next 10 years. And in the long term, we're in the midst of this bounce back up from, from a deep recession. And, and so if it goes through in this form, I think we've laid the, the groundwork for a real problem. Mm, yeah, I think I remember last, maybe last week you were on one of the news channels talking about how, you know, by the time this money hits the economy, you know, most people will be back to work at this point. So you'll be taking people out of one job and putting them in the construction field. And that's that's an expense, right? Moving people from one sector to another is a cost in the economy. And that's not good news. Imposing costs usually is bad news. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the tax hikes in the bill, because that obviously has some economic impact. The pay-fors in the spending package, to help fund all of this new spending, the president includes you know, a $1.8 trillion tax increase on U.S. companies. First, what specific tax hikes is the administration calling for here? There are three big ones. Uh, number one, raise the top corporate rate from 21% to 28%. Uh, number two, impose a uh, worldwide minimum tax of 21%. So earnings anywhere on the globe are taxed at a minimum of 21%, maybe more. Um, and then number three, an entirely new tax, something we've never had before, a tax on the reported book income of a firm. So you always hear earnings announcements, you know, and the, they always file their, with the SEC their, their gap um, uh, income statements, Tax a tax on that reported income as opposed to the taxable income on the tax return, that tax would be a terrible idea. Just want to make make that clear at the beginning. Yeah, what would be the issues there with with economic growth? So the genesis of this kind of idea is you get a big successful company, Amazon did this for years, which reports zero taxable income, but nevertheless shows lots and lots of profits on its um, on its books. And they say, oh my god, tax cheat. No, right? Those are two different animals accounting income and taxable income, and they differ in two very important ways. The first is timing. Accounting income is present value. It's like now and looking forward over the life of something, what happens? Tax income is cash flow. It's this year. And and uh, a big difference uh, on timing is that the tax code allows you to carry forward losses from the past and thus reduce your tax liability now. Um, there's no such thing in, in your uh, accounting income that past is gone. So those those differ tremendously in terms of the timing. And, and you can massage your, your book income by picking your fiscal year. The IRS is not so flexible. You, you can't call them up and say, hey, you know what? 2021 really hasn't started yet, okay? <laughs> There's just completely different timing issues uh, there. The second thing is that um, they treat investment very differently. And this is what happened for with Amazon for years. You can expense, deduct the full cost of uh, investments in the tax code. You can't do that on your book income. You have to depreciate it and take a fraction of the, the full cost each year. So if you're a growing firm, 
doing a lot of investments, you're getting those investments up front and, and getting the deductions. As firms mature, they stop investing so much, they stop getting those deductions and they get taxed more heavily uh, because the, the capital is all sitting out there. So again, that that's that's perfectly legitimate. There's no cheating going on. Um, and then there are other things to reduce your taxes, like you know, uh, clean energy tax credits. We can you know, have a fight about whether we think they're good policy, but th they're there. And, mm -hmm. and there, there are no such things in, in your accounting income. So they're different animals. It makes no sense as a result to use the accounting number for tax purposes. You're going to create all sorts of problems. And, and this is a, this is a, uh, you know, and I, uh, this is the kind of bad idea whose time has come, but it should go away. <laughs> One of the other issues is, of course, sending jobs overseas. And the Biden administration is saying, uh, claiming that raising the corporate tax rate won't cause companies to move abroad. Uh, what do you think of this? And, you know, would a global minimum tax prevent employers from shifting overseas? So if you roll the clock back to 2013, 14, 15, 16, pick a year anywhere in there, we had just a steady drumbeat of announcements of U.S. firms changing their headquarters to somewhere abroad. And th they always would generate a huge political ruckus. They'd be labeled Benedict Arnold firms and everyone would be bad mouthing them. And, you know, the Treasury would issue some targeted regulation to try to stop them. And, and it was disastrously bad economic policy, disastrously bad politics. And the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act fixed it. There was one headquarter that, that left in January of 2018, nothing since. It's just been fixed. There is no reason to go back there. But if you raise the rate from 21 to 28, you go from the middle of the pack in the developed world to, to, to way out of line. And if your headquarters are in the US, you're now subject to a 21% worldwide tax. No one else taxes on a worldwide basis. That's one of the things that we, we learned with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So you can just start kissing the headquarters goodbye and you'll lose some jobs. There's no question about it. Um, so I, I really don't think they should reopen that can of worms. These are aggressive proposals in the wrong direction. Something we'll have to watch for as this plays out. Quick look at the math here. The administration wants to spend all the money over the next eight years, but pay for it over the next 15 years. Doesn't make much sense to me. What's the rationale here? I, I, I think they just wanted to make it look closer to balanced. You know, the reality is when it turns into legislation, it's going to get scored by the Congressional Budget Office and the Joint Committee on Taxation, and they're going to do it over the 10-year budget window. And we will see 10 years of spending and 10 years of revenue, and then we'll see how closely they match. And it's not going to be as close as it appears in this presentation. That's all there is to it. Gotcha. So we'll have to wait for legislative text and things to be a little bit more clear to really judge the plan in the whole. I think that's right. What about the international angle here? The IMF uh, just raised its forecast for global growth to 6% in 2021. Would greater growth across the world help offset the economic hit from this plan? What is the global impact, the international angle here? Well, I mean, th that line of reasoning was has been true over the past uh, decade or two. There have been periods where the U.S. benefited from rapid international growth driven by other countries, China being one of the, the notable um, players. And so... You know, it, the rising tide that lifts all boats, sometimes the U.S. is a boat, and that, that that's helpful. That's not the case now. We are ahead of everyone else in uh, vaccine penetration, uh, best positions to, to grow rapidly. IMF has the U.S. above six. Um, so, so we are pulling other people along in those projections. And I think the, the part of those projections that stands out, to me at least, is not 
the rapid overall growth. I think that you get that when you come out of a recession, especially as steep a one as we had, especially given the causes of it, just sort of the inability to conduct commerce generated by the virus. You diminish the, the virus, you, you come right back. The real issue is that the emerging markets in low-income countries grow much more slowly. They're down around four. And um, that that's the, the international mirror image of the so-called K-shaped recovery in the U.S., where we have seen, uh, you know, high skill workers back at work, recessions essentially are over. If you're a low skill worker in retail, leisure and hospitality, health services, we, there's still a lot of unemployment and um, that recovery is, is substantially behind. So we're seeing that in the world stage. And we're, see, we're seeing it in our economy as well. Interesting. Finally, what about the legislative process? I mean, we've heard we don't have tax yet. But we've heard, you know, Senator Manchin talking about how the corporate tax rate is too high. We've heard the parliamentarian already weigh in on certain things with the reconciliation process. How likely is Congress to pass something through regular order or even through the reconciliation process? So there are really two substantive pieces uh, of legislation in play. This American Jobs Plan and the promised American Family Plan details to be released in a month. But that is likely to include... Um, making the the child tax credit, which is much more generous for one year, making that permanent, making the enhanced premium tax credits subsidies in the in the Affordable Care Act markets, make those permanent, make the enhanced EITC permanent, so sort of things the family order and stuff. And there's some papers there as well. Top rates, taxing capital gains more heavily, both at death and, and during people's lifetimes. You know, so my guess is that. There is no magic of multiple reconciliation bills. There's going to be one more uh, that comes out of a fiscal 22 budget resolution. Uh, those two efforts merge because you need to have more ways to cut deals across uh, the Democrats who are going to need to carry this over the finish line. And they have to get a consensus in their camp. And I think in the end, it doesn't go in regular order. I think they do another reconciliation bill and that limits the kinds of things they can do. But it doesn't. But but it does happen. Uh, I think it's important for them to get another thing for the president and for their uh, their caucus. And, and I fully expect those two efforts to merge, become a reconciliation bill. And um, it, it, and it'll just be a tough slog. It'll probably happen late, late in the year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's the Senate side of things, but also the House side of things, too, I think would be interesting. Yeah. Because you know, the legislative fatigue will probably be setting in. You know, some of these more moderate Democrats have to agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean. And, and it's a slim margin in the House. So it's not, you know, it's, I think it'll also be interesting and difficult to see what happens on the House side of things. I think it's, that's that's exactly right. It is, it is a real tightrope to, to get it through the House, get it through the Senate and have the same bill be agreed upon. I mean, they managed to do that quickly with the American Rescue Plan only because it was in, in large part the HEROES Act from the previous Congress. They'd already voted on it. They were comfortable with the content. It was easy to do. This is all new. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a tougher sell. Yeah. On another fun note, let's turn to a very confusing time for the federal budgeting. You recently wrote in your dish column that the president's so-called skinny budget, which the administration was supposed to re release last week but didn't happen, won't really mean much. Um, would you walk us through your thoughts on this? Yeah. So um, – uh, I want to be clear. Some people thought I was criticizing them for being late. I'm not. Administrations are late all the time. My point is that we just won't learn much from it, right? We will get 
one year's worth of discretionary spending proposals. So that's that's useful for the appropriations process that they need to do right now. It's useful internally for the agencies, right, for management, because they know what monies they're going to get for staff and things like that. But it's not useful if you want to know what is the framework for thinking about the budget over the, the one to two terms of, of President Biden. You know, I, I would like to know the answer to the question, what is viewed as acceptable when he walks out the door? What is his target for the debt? What's his target for the deficit? What are they thinking about? Cut it in half in the next four years? I mean, there have been traditionally metrics that presidents have used. Then you would know um, some of those things. Um, I'd like to know how all these different proposals fit together. Eight years of this, 15 years of that, family plan, jobs plan. A budget would have it all, right? And, yeah. and, and a budget president's budget is always uh, built on an economic forecast that assumes the president gets what he or she wants. Then, and that's that has a label, dynamic scoring, but then they would be forced to show what they think the trajectory of the economy would be with and without these proposals, and that would be useful information as well. So I would love to see a real budget. That we won't see that till, till next year, and, mm -hmm. and instead we'll get this, this string of discretionary numbers, and, and that won't answer many questions. Seems like there's a theme coming here that uh, a lot of what we're just waiting and seeing, we're trying to wait for more information to get a better understanding about what's actually happening with some of these proposals. And I think that's right. And that that's true for you, me, but also for members of Congress who ultimately will have to vote and they need to know what they're voting. Right. And that process has begun. Right. Um, the budget also contains that the economic outlook, as you mentioned. Um, why is this important information to get? Because... You know, the, the amount of spending and the amount of revenues depend a lot on what you assume about economic growth. You get more revenue and you spend less when the economy is growing rapidly. We'd like to see this economy grow more rapidly. We'd like to see people get back to, to work and not be receiving enhanced unemployment insurance, right? That means less spending. So the, the, the sort of outlook for the budget and the outlook for the economy are really tightly linked. And so that's both good and bad news. It's good news in that, you know, we, if we do better, budget will genuinely improve. Um, it's bad news because it says you can game the budget numbers by pretending the economy is going to grow real rapidly when that's not realistic. And you just want to make sure this is built on realistic assumptions. Mm -hmm. Doug, you started talking about this earlier, but I want to end on it today. Um, you mentioned in your call in this same column that the budget could contain more details about the next big spending bill, the American Family Plan. You yeah. mentioned all those provisions earlier, but maybe walk us through some of those details that we know about this effort. Well, I mean, my, my point is simply that when you look at a typical president's budget uh, in a typical year, not a transition year, you get all of the revenue proposals, you get all of the mandatory spending proposals, you get all of the discretionary spending proposals. So you have all of the information and how it adds up. We, we know there's going to be an American family plan. That's all we know. I am guessing that the, the key provisions that that I know of that will be in it would be things like the child credit, the, the earned income tax credit, the premium tax credits, the subsidies for, for health insurance. Um, you know, th those are important initiatives. They're either one or two year provisions at the moment. They would like to have them be extended and made permanent if at all possible. So th that's coming. Um, there are some things they've talked about doing on the revenue side. So they're gonna be, they've saved some pay fors. The top rate they have said quite clearly has got to go up. Capital gains have to be taxed more heavily, so I have to expect that to be as a pay for. Um, I, I, I'm sure that they will 
do something on prescription drugs in that in that effort. That's been a promise. And so how do you help American families? Well, we're going to lower health care costs. Here's how we do it. We subsidize insurance. We, we take down drug prices. That, thematically, that all fits. So I think that's all in there. Is that everything? I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. Well, thanks again for walking us through all this. But before I let you go, I have to ask, any fun weekend plans? We're going to watch the Masters, and we're going to probably do a little else. We'll see. Yeah, I will be watching the Masters and watching Red Sox baseball now that that's finally back. So those are my only plans for the weekend. (laughs) Thanks again, Doug. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.